Good morning. Great to see you guys. Uh, wow, what a perfect song to lead us into uh, our text for today. Um, we're in the second half of Ephesians, chapters four through six. And, you know, basically we just sang chapters one through three, this precious gift that God has given us in his son, all sufficient, a finished work that gives us new life. And so then we transition into chapter four. We've been there for a few weeks and it's really all about our response to that gift that we have been given. A couple of key phrases that uh, we've been kind of circling around, this idea of walking worthy, right? And that means that my life uh, reflects the goodness of God and his blessing. So I want to walk worthy or live like I'm blessed. And then living like I'm blessed means that I am very committed to maintaining the unity that we have in the spirit as Christ followers. So we've got that whole train of thought. And then last week, Jeff took us into uh, the kind of the practical application of putting off the old self, who we were, what we were prior to meeting Christ, being renewed in the spirit of our minds, and then putting on the new self, the new life that we have been given. We could put all of that really beginning in verse 17 of chapter 4 and going forward under an umbrella of kind of ethical standards of the new community. It's really Paul's way of saying this is what it's like to live in the body of Christ, in the family of God. Now, to help us understand kind of how to think about all of that, uh, Galatians 5.14, here's what Paul says there. If you're, again, you're thinking about ethical standards, every culture, every religion, they, they all have an idea about the way you ought to do life. And, and it may differ greatly, but everybody has an answer to that question. So here's what Paul says in Galatians 5.14. The whole law is fulfilled in one law. If you want to know what the code of conduct is for Christianity, here it is. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that, according to Paul, that's how we live out a response to the goodness of God and all that he has blessed us with. So we probably ought to think about this neighbor idea, especially too, if we're going to maintain the unity that we have as the body of Christ. So let's think about it for a moment. A neighbor is someone in close proximity, relationally or geographically. Now, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, I don't know, that was probably a pretty small circle. But now let's, let's kind of inject social media. Your neighbor circle just exploded Think about that. Every person that you interact with, that you may like or not like, and they may like or not like you, but your neighbors in a digital space, I think we have to take that into consideration. How do I relate to those people? I'm called to love my neighbor as myself. So a lot of people have been brought into close proximity with us, so to speak, whether that is in person or 
or online. So how do we understand the concept of love your neighbor? I thought we could just ask Jake at State Farm. I mean, like he says, like a good neighbor. Right, okay, so the world knows what it's like to be a good neighbor. You're there. What does there mean? I mean, now for an insurance company, right, they're, gonna, they're reliable. They're going to help you out. It's personal. You've seen all the commercials. Um, but, but there is something about a neighbor being there for you. And, and that could be a huge idea. I, I think we're going to get some ideas about what that means today. But I, I thought that was a way of getting at this putting on the new self in the new community of faith, it, it must have something to do with being a good neighbor. So here's four things that I think are true, Paul would certainly say are true about living like a good neighbor. First of all, it's preventing truth decay. Preventing truth decay. There was a book years ago by a guy named Douglas Groteis. Um, his last name is spelled nothing like how it sounds there, but a fantastic book about the decay of truth that we have experienced in the history of our country. Um, we have to be very vigilant about that and mindful of it. So this is part of being a good neighbor. Paul would say in Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, that idea of putting away falsehood, that is, again, that's going back to chapters 1 through 3, but specifically, those Ephesian Christians, they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their, their salvation, this is in verse 13 of chapter 1, and they believed in him. They put away the falsehood that they had lived by prior to hearing about Christ. Then what Paul does here is he's now laying out the implications of having done that. This is what you're going to live like based upon that set of beliefs. And his first one is, tell your neighbor the truth. Again, neighbor. Think of all the neighbors that you have in this life. And you're called, I'm called in every moment to speak truth. Paul is developing the earlier idea he mentioned in verse 15 about uh, truthing in love. Remember that a couple of weeks ago where it's like in word and in deed, we are to truth one another, live truthfully with one another in love. Now he's specifically getting into what we say and don't say to our neighbors, whoever they might be. Now, this struck me. Uh, Paul is writing to a church that he planted. It's a few years old by this time. And it just kind of struck me as funny. He's saying, hey, guys, I've got a lot of things I need to tell you about, you know, being a church and walking with Christ and following him and all that. And so here's one of them. Stop lying to one another. Now, doesn't, doesn't that seem odd? It's like, well, Christians, like, we don't lie, do we? You would be shocked. <laughs> I, it was staggering to do a little research on the number of lies that we tell and the number of lies that we hear. 
It's unbelievable. It's like an ocean of untruth that we live in every single day. So all the more reason for us to be very, very adamant about going after this. The lie is multifaceted. It can be failing to say what needs to be said, right? You can leave that out. Uh, Rumors and gossip, just kind of spreading news about people, exaggeration, omission, misinformation, twisting the truth, straight-up deception. We justify and rationalize it all. I mean, we can always think of a reason why we might want to leave something out or emphasize something over another. I mean, we have to come to terms with this. Lying is never a mistake. It's always strategic. Lying is a conscious choice to rely upon untruth as a means to an end of some kind in a given situation rather than trusting wholeheartedly in the who and what is true. What Jesus said, I am the way, the, and the life. So when we lie, even when we tell those little white lies, what we're doing is we're trusting in our strategies rather than trusting in the, capital T, truth. See how that works? Paul's saying, if you're going to live like a good neighbor... You've got to speak the truth with your neighbor, one to another. Now, lying has never worked for humanity. Go all the way back. Genesis chapter 3. What happened? They believed a lie. And, And then Paul kind of teases this out, giving a much longer historical perspective. But he basically says, beginning with the curse... Uh, humanity just kind of kept going down that track. And eventually it says God just turned them over or gave them over to kind of the fullness of the curse and all its perversions, all its consequences. He gave them over to that. And then Paul tells us why. Romans 1, 24 and 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So lies always have and always will enslave us. They divide us. They destroy us. Truth, on the other hand, sets us free and binds us together in that freedom. Notice Paul's motivation for being truth-tellers. He's still tying into that idea of maintaining the unity that we have in the Spirit. So truth-telling is the preservation of our trusted community because we are literally members of one another. If you and I are not truthful with each other, then we are harming one another. And it's not just isolated. We are a body, and an organism. We're all connected in the spirit. And so truth is of the uttermost, incredibly important. So you want to be a good neighbor, you tell the truth to your neighbor. Secondly, 
Good neighbors are good and mad. Look at verse 26. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Uh, now, when, whenever I get into thoughts or you know, topics around emotion, I'm always kind of thrown back to uh, growing up in my childhood. I basically had two emotions that I worked with most of the time. One was anger, and then the other one was anger. <laughs> I was just mad all the time. And it didn't matter what was actually going on inside of me or what I might have been feeling. It just seemed to always kind of find its way. I'm just mad. Um, thankfully, and this was after I moved here. I was in my 30s, been married, kids, all that stuff, still mad. And um, came across this beautiful research uh, resource, Voice of the Heart. Our own Phil Herndon, elder, uh, has been a part of that for years. He, we took our guys... Our men through a study last fall, Voice of the Heart Bible study. Um, guys, if or anybody, guys and gals, uh, you can get that online. Fantastic resource. But all of a sudden, it was like this whole world opened up to me. I'm like, I'm not just mad all the time. Sometimes I'm sad. Sometimes I'm lonely. Sometimes I'm afraid. And it doesn't have to always end up with me being mad. And now I have a category. A categories to think in, a vocabulary to use. I can bring the inside out. And my wife was praising the Lord. <laughs> so grateful that I could finally talk about, you know, what she could see but didn't know. Amazing for our marriage. Paul says, you need to be angry but not sin. And you need to not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. That phrase, be angry and don't sin, um, we might wonder if that's even possible. Because some of us grew up understanding that to be angry was to sin. So you just need to cut that out. No anger in this house. But Paul would say otherwise. He would say, it's fine to be angry. In fact, there's some things that you really ought to be angry about. But how you live out that anger with your neighbors, beginning at home, it's huge. Matters a lot. Uh, here's some thoughts about anger. Here's how I understand it. Anger is an emotional response to interference. Just think about you wanting something and there's something getting in the way. And that typically evokes anger in us. And our anger is about doing something with that interference. Chip Dodd uh, says this, anger is the energy of desire and the willingness to reach for the desire be to be satisfied. Authentic anger is a caring feeling telling us that something matters. Anger then creates movement. Tim uh, Keller would agree. Anger is love in motion toward a threat to that which you love. Now we got to think about what we love and whether or not we should love it. We're going to get to that. But if you feel angry, it means you care about something in a significant way. And something is in the way of you having that. Or getting that. And it may not even be for you. It may be for somebody else, someone that you care about. 
So the, the emotion of anger is morally neutral all by itself. I think of it like a gauge on your dashboard. It's just telling you what's going on underneath the hood. But once it lights up, once you start getting some information there, then you got to do something about it. And that's where you want to go in your response. How can we be angry and not sin? How can we respond well to this little sensor inside of us that says, hey, something matters, something's in the way, you need to do something about it. So here's some thoughts about that. Anger needs reins. Think of like a, a huge steed. And horses don't need to run wild if they're going to be around people. They need reins. They need direction. They need guidance. A short fuse and explosive reactions make matters worse, right? Not better. And I, I will say this. Um, we're going to talk about another expression of anger in just a moment. But if you fly off the handle, if you have a short fuse, if people have to walk on eggshells around you, then you, can, you need to take this to heart. Because you're not just feeling angry. You are taking that anger out on the people that are around you. And that is so costly. And the Lord, I am a testifier to this. <laughs> I can tell you stories if you ever want to sit down over a cup of coffee. But the Lord has done a huge work in my life in this area. And so much of it was me coming to terms with this right here. Just saying, Lord, I'm angry. But I want to, do, I want to handle it well. And I need you to help me. I need your reins on my life. Proverbs 14.29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Anger is an energy to act, not an excuse to erupt. Uh, Chip Dodd again says, Rage denies our humanity with a willful fury against our vulnerability. Um, a lot of us, when we get angry, it, we tend to feel like we're really strong. But actually, anger is probably more related to our weakness. We hate feeling vulnerable, so we get big. We get loud. We get violent. We get all of that so that we don't have to feel vulnerable. Man, that's a, a huge thing to take into consideration when our emotions take off. So we need reins. Uh, having said that, people, uh, Paul seems to be less focused here on these eruptions. I think it's assumed, but um, he seems to be more focused on the failure to resolve issues that elicit anger. Because his next phrase is, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So what's that about? Well, how many of you, so maybe this is a different crowd... How many of you, you feel angry, it's there, and you even know it, but nobody else does? You don't ever say a crossword. Your temperature doesn't ever rise on the outside, but you're walking around muttering, <laughs> right? Kicking the dog. I mean, you, you know, you're doing stuff. It's coming out, but not in an appropriate way. Paul is saying, when you feel anger, it needs to be addressed. 
and it needs to be addressed with the person or persons with whom it began. You got to work through that. Uh, another way I've heard it said is keep short accounts when it comes to offenses. Um, if you're a stuffer, then you just carry it around week after week after week. And it doesn't ever evaporate. It just stays and it grows. And then that day comes. Have you ever had that day when it's just it's the cam- uh, straw that broke the camel's back kind of thing? And you're like, I don't know what happened. I just, I just blew up. Well, it's probably because you weren't dealing with it along the way. And it will always come out eventually in some way. So we need to keep short accounts. We need to address it along the way. And then uh, not letting the sun go down on our anger. When we do premarital counseling, young couples are like, so we literally cannot go to bed until every single conversation is resolved and it's all good. Like, I, I think the heart of this is proverbial. So I think the heart is you are devoted to resolving it however long it takes, but get some sleep. <laughs> right? So it's okay. But so, like with Kimberly and I, if we're in a conflict and it's getting really late at night, it's like, hey, let's get some sleep. But I, and I would initiate this. I, we're going to pick this up tomorrow or the next day. But, I mean, we're going to set a time, and we're going to come back to this. And if I don't, I'd say to Kimberly, then you can call me on it. Because we need to clean this up, clean the slate, so that we can keep moving forward in unity. Stuffing anger inevitably gives us heartburn And uh, heartburn is a root of bitterness that eventually leads to uh, broken relationships. Now, if that weren't enough, just to wrap up this little section here, Paul says poorly handled anger gives the devil opportunity. We might say opportunity for what? Well, what what does the Bible tell us Satan does? He steals, he kills, and he destroys. So when we don't resolve anger and offenses with one another, here's the word picture that I found this week. We leave the door open. Imagine you just leaving your door swung open overnight. That's what you're doing for the devil so that he can come in, he can steal, he can kill, and he can destroy. When we resolve anger, we close and lock the door to him. And we preserve the unity that we have in our relationships. So, how to be good and mad. First of all, own your anger. If you've got it, put it on the table. Secondly, put your anger to the test before you act. Before you act, not after. And here's how you do that. Here's some questions that you might ask yourself. What desire or aim of mine is encountering interference? Like, what do I want and what's in the way? I need to know what that is. Then I want to ask, how aligned is my desire with God's desire? Because if I'm not aligned with him, then maybe I shouldn't want that thing. 
Or maybe I just shouldn't be angry about the fact that something's in the way. Maybe that's even God's protection. So I want to ask that question. And then finally, what do I need to do with the energy to act that I'm feeling? It might be I need to ask some questions. It might mean that I need to intervene in some way. It might mean that I need to repent. Or it might mean that I need to overlook an offense. Proverbs says it is man's glory to overlook an offense. I'm not talking about sweeping it under the rug. I'm saying you may need to realize I'm making a bigger deal of that than I should. So lots of opportunities there. Anger fuels action. And we begin by putting it to the test. Righteous anger operates under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Actually, all of our emotions ought to be submitted to Him and His leadership in our life. It's got energy. It's got a sense of determination. But it is uh, driven by godly objectives and tempered by humility, grace, and love. All right, so if we're going to be a good neighbor, we got to prevent truth decay. we got to live good and mad. And then we've got to be committed to the labor of love. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This, for me, fell under that same category of Paul's writing to a church And he first has to tell them, hey, by the way, guys, don't lie to one another. That's not good, as if that's a surprise. But then the next one is, and also, stop stealing from one another. Now, this is the most universal ethical standard on earth. I I don't know that you would go anywhere in the world and they would say, oh, yeah, here in our country, stealing's totally cool. Yeah, if you just see something you need, take it. It's all right. It's all right. No, everybody knows that you don't steal. Because you are taking something from somebody else so that you don't have to take responsibility for getting it in a responsible way. You're using others, and that's a total killer to community. Nevertheless, Paul says, don't steal, which means we can assume there were people in that body who came from a way of life. Remember, they're in Ephesus. They come to Christ, and they need to be told Hey, this isn't the way you do life in this new community that you're a part of. You need to, according to Paul, get a job. And and the job here isn't just like just anything you can find. The word labor there is like strenuous uh, activity at work to the point of exhaustion. He's saying you need to roll up your sleeves and get to work. But what's even more interesting than that is why? Not so that your needs can be met. That it's assumed that if you go out and you do a good job, you'll get paid and you'll have something to eat. But the motivation for this work is so that you'll have something to share in this new community with people who are not able to work. People who can't, like they would love to go get a job, but they can't. And they're utterly dependent upon this new community for everything. So you go to work, not just for yourself. You go to work for the people in your community with whom you are a brother or a sister. You go to work 
for them. You don't take from others, you give. The, the heart here is really a sense of, remember, live like you're blessed. It's like you're so aware of God's goodness, God's sufficiency, God's faithfulness, that you're going to trust in Him. You're not going to try and take a shortcut. You're going to say, Lord, I want you to certainly care for me, but Lord, would you use me to care for your people? Would you do that? And I wondered, how many of us think about work that way? How many of us went out and went after that job with the, the primary thought in our mind was, man, if I can get this job, just think of all the people I can help. Man, that's otherworldly, isn't it? That's a new self. That's something you got to put on. That's spirit led, not tied up in the world. It's the labor of love. There were great examples of this in the early church. I can't imagine facing all that they faced when, that, uh, when the early church was birthed, but write down Acts 2, 44 and 45, and then Acts 4, 32 through 34. Somewhere in there it talks about they had everything in common, and what they had done is they had shifted away from this very individualistic perspective on life, and they just said, you know what, I'm, I am a part of a family. And I, I'm going to be open to whatever God wants or needs me to do for the good of the family. And, and part of the mutual commitment we have to one another is, I know that they're doing the same thing for me. And I may end up in a spot where I need that. And so what a blessing to be in a community like that. What a gift. Good neighbors prevent truth decay, live good and mad. They embrace the labor of love. And then the last thing is they commit themselves to taming the tongue. This is probably the heaviest piece of the whole passage. Let me read it and then uh, offer some thoughts. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. If you're a, an underliner, underline let no and but only. Those are the strongest possible terms there. Don't let just a little corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Don't just let a few things slide. The, I mean, the word for corrupting is decayed and rotten. It, it's a reference to spoiled fish. Don't let the slightest hint of that come out of your mouth, Paul says. But only, I mean, tight guardrails, but only that which would build others up, be appropriate in the moment, and give grace to everyone who hears it. And that is a tall 
order. I want to beg you to write down James 3, 1 through 10, and this week, I don't do this very often, but this week I want to ask you to read those 10 verses. And you will understand when you're reading that why Paul is so adamant here. The tongue is as destructive an instrument as just about anything on earth. Solomon writes in Proverbs, life and death are in the power of the tongue. You have as much beautiful, magnificent, fruitful potential as you could possibly have in your words and... You can do more destructive than destruction than you can even comprehend with your words. Just your words. Here's a biblical filter. Only say those things that are good for building up. Like when people hear you talk, their faith should be nurtured. Their hope should be fueled. Their wisdom should be expanded. That's what your words ought to do. That's what my words ought to do. And and just so you know, I'm not speaking from some high place here. One of my greatest, I think I've shared about this before at some point, 23 years. But um, summer of 1983, year after I came to Christ was the raunchiest summer of my life. And one of the things that was characteristic of me, and and there's no pride in this whatsoever, but me and my Christian buddies would sit around and string together as many expletives as we could just to express our creativity. It's just, it's a huge regret, but I'm like, that was me. And God did a radical work in my life right around this right here. And I began to see that it was sewage coming out of my mouth. And I'm not just talking about saying cuss words, because you know you can can come up with all kinds of alternatives and still just rip people to shreds. No unwholesome word. Put it to the test. Ask the Lord, is it, does it build up the people around me? Is it appropriate in the occasion? I know some of us are easier talkers than others. So if you're a talker, you probably got to be extra careful here. Just because it comes to your mind doesn't mean you need to say it. Think about who's around, what's going on, where are we? And is what I'm about to say, is this going to be a blessing Or is it just noise? And is it able to give grace to those who hear? I can think of few topical studies more fruitful than one related to our speech. Here's another little uh, homework assignment for you. Um, Not as urgent as the James one, but um, if you have a concordance, which is really just a list of all the words that show up in our Old and New Testament... Uh, get an English exhaustive concordance 
and look up these three words. The word words, tongue, and mouth. And you only need to look it up in Psalms and Proverbs. You don't even have to go outside of that unless you want to. There are 106 references to the mouth in Psalms and Proverbs. Here's a couple of samples. Proverbs 29, 20. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 25, 11, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. That's the potential that your words have for good. So here's a prayer as you're asking those filter questions. Psalm 19, 14, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, because that's where words come from. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. You ask the Lord that, he will change what you say and what you don't say. And isn't it interesting how that ties into everything else we've been talking about, about how we relate to our neighbors So let me give you an opportunity for expressions of neighborliness. Which of these might be a good focus for you going into a new week? Where might the Lord uh, help you grow? And I loved what we sang, uh, I think, in the third song. No more going through the motions. Like, let's not be churchy in here. Let's be changed. Let's let the Holy Spirit literally transform the way we relate to one another, to the person next door, to the person at work, to the person online, everywhere we go. Let's live like a good neighbor. Take a moment and ask the Lord how to apply what we've talked about today. so grateful that you uh, have given us new life thank you for your son thank you for grace and mercy thank you for the power of the resurrection thank you for this new community that we get to do life with
And Lord, thank you for a code of conduct, a way of living that is uh, good for us and honoring for you. So Lord, would you help us today as we're confronted with how we live? Uh, We want to live like we're blessed, so help us. And uh, we acknowledge before you our need thankful that you are faithful and sufficient. So uh, praise you for this day, Lord. Uh, Be exalted in our midst and uh, do as you please with us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.